Father, we love you very much, and we are, we are blessed, truly blessed. Blessed to be called sons and daughters of the living God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. To be part of the family of God, to be able to come to this place and to celebrate our Lord and his resurrection and to have fellowship one with another and to find strength and encouragement and comfort to lift our voices and praise to you, to gather around your word and to learn of you, Father, and to grow in the grace and knowledge of you and your, your Son and the Spirit. And so I do pray that your Holy Spirit would lead us as we study the Scriptures together, that the Holy Spirit would open our, our eyes, as it were, our hearts, our understanding, that our knowledge of you and our love for you would increase and that you would receive much honor and glory today, Father. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. amen. Hallelujah. Well, we are concluding John chapter 10 today. And over the last couple of weeks now, we've been talking about Jesus as the Good Shepherd. Jesus, the Good Shepherd. And we've noted a number of things about Jesus as the Good Shepherd, just by way of review. Jesus, as the Good Shepherd, has rightful access to God's flock. He's not a robber. He's not a thief. He's not a wolf, as it were. He has rightful access to the flock of God. He has been entrusted with the care of God's sheep. Jesus, the good shepherd, knows his sheep. He knows them intimately. He knows them individually. He knows you, everything about you. He knows you relationally. It's a personal experiential knowledge. Jesus, the good shepherd, is known by the sheep. We know him. Jesus said that my sheep know me, they hear my voice, and they follow. We are acquainted with the, word, uh, the, the voice of our good shepherd through his word. The good shepherd leads the sheep to good pasture, and they go in and out. They graze freely. It kind of speaks of really the comfort that we have in our shepherd and our savior, and just the in and out daily life of the Christian, coming and going, drawing near to the Good Shepherd in our devotional time, going out into the world and living our lives for Christ, and coming back into the fold and drawing near to Him yet again for more strength and sustenance. Jesus, as the Good Shepherd, gives eternal life to the sheep, and they shall never perish. Amen? Amen. Though they die, yet they shall live. Jesus, the good shepherd, will never lose one of his father's sheep. And that's what we talked about last week. Jesus, the good shepherd, will not lose one. And we draw so much hope and encouragement from that reality. We are his. We are in the loving embrace of the good shepherd. And absolutely nothing can tear us away from that. Amen? Nobody can snatch us out of his hand. Praise God for that. So two weeks ago, <clears throat> we talked about the care of the Good Shepherd, being in his care. Last week, we talked about the motivation of the Good Shepherd. He shepherds the flock out of love for the Father and out of love for us. Amen? He loves us. Today, we're going to talk about the ability of the Good Shepherd. He's able. He's able. <clears throat> he is truly able to do all the things that he says he can do because he is who he says he is. Amen? And this really gives us confidence. So it's kind of a twofold thing. The, the ability of the shepherd and the confidence of the sheep. 
the ability of the shepherd and the confidence of the sheep. See, all kinds of promises can be made, but if they can't be carried out, what good are they? And we understand this. Sometimes we make promises that we can't keep. Our intentions are good. We really want to do the things that we say we're going to do, but when it comes right down to it, we realize we promised more than we could actually carry out. You ever been there? Ever done that? You ever had someone do that to you? I mean, these things happen, but not so with the Savior. Not so with the Good Shepherd. Every single promise that He makes, you can take it to the bank. He's going to make good on it because He's able. Because He is absolutely able. Jesus has made many wonderful statements and promises as I have just recounted to us. And Jesus qualifies these promises by claiming equality with the Father, that He and the Father are one. And that's really the crux of what we're going to be looking at today. It's because of who Jesus is that He can do what He says He will do. Because He and the Father are one. He is equal with the Father. That is the source of His ability. And so mark it down, folks. Jesus is able. Our God is able. That's something that we have to keep ever before us and remind ourselves over and over. Our God is able. And that is something that we see regularly throughout the Scriptures. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, it says, Therefore He is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. He's able to save to the uttermost. I like to say he saves from the guttermost to the uttermost. <laughs> you know, snatches us right up out the gutter, and he gives us a mighty salvation. Amen. Jude 124, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. He is able to save us, and he is able to keep us from stumbling, keep us from falling away, keep us from getting carried away in sin. 2 Corinthians 9, it says, And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. God is able to make us useful. God is able to make us useful for Him. And so when you believe that Jesus is who He says He is, and that He can do what He says He can do, that gives us confidence. Amen? That gives us confidence. And that's, you know, the Christian life ought to be one of great confidence. That's why the sheep could lay down in green pastures, because they are confident in the shepherd's ability to keep them safe. They know the shepherd's legit, right? And so they're able to graze in peace. And we see this even in the language of Paul. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, it says, For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed. For I know in whom I have believed. I know in whom I have believed. Listen to this. And I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. He says, I know in whom I have believed and I am not ashamed. In fact, I'm convinced that he's able. He's able to guard. He's able to keep that which I have committed to him until that day of my very life. Do you believe that he's able do you believe that Jesus is who He says He is as the Good Shepherd, that He can deliver on His promises, that He can do what He says He can do? Do you have confidence in the Savior today? I hope you do. And I hope after this study that we have even more confidence in Him. And that's really, as I said, the point. And, that, and the three points that we look at here today in our text, that's, that's the idea. So with it, let's go ahead and dig in. 
Point number one, we can have confidence in the good shepherd because of who he is. Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. I and my Father are one. So he he makes some pretty outstanding statements there, and then he says, I and my Father are one. That's his authority. That's his ability. That's his source. So where are we right now? We're, We're at the temple in Jerusalem. We're at the Feast of Dedication. I talked last week about what that is. It's not a a feast that was instituted by God Himself, but it's something that the Jews instituted because of something very rich in their history, and it's actually Hanukkah. It's the Feast of Hanukkah. So that's where they're at. It's the wintertime. And we're told they're in a place called Solomon's Porch. I have a couple of images up here, but you know what? I forgot my pointer. forgot my pointer. And so I don't know if that's going to be a problem. So if we could throw that first one up. Okay, if you just look along the kind of the top part of the picture there, you see all of those columns that go all the way across? Okay, that's, that's Sol, uh, Solomon's colonnade or Solomon's porch. So that's, that's kind of where they are at in the temple. And let's switch to the other one. I think this one helps us a little more. That's actually what it looked like. And so from that little scale, you wouldn't think it's that big, would you? That's just how massive the temple complex was. And so this is kind of where Jesus is standing, and we know that the the leaders have rushed him, they've encircled him, he's totally encircled by the leaders, and they are calling him to account. They said, once and for all, tell us who you are, tell us plainly, tell us openly, tell us publicly. All right, thank you. And so that just kind of helps us kind of drop down into the scene and kind of picture for ourselves what's going on here. Well, Jesus goes above and beyond in answering their question. He gives them more than they bargained for, really. They just want him to say plainly, are you the Christ or not? And as we see here, he says so much more than that. He says that he is the shepherd who gives eternal life to the sheep, that none of them will ever perish, that none of them will ever snatch them, no one will ever snatch them out of his hands because he and the Father are one. And so that's... You know, we hear that, and that doesn't even cause us to flinch. But back then, that was like, you know, you could be killed for that. You would be stoned for blasphemy. And that's, that's the response of the people here, as we will see. And so, what is Jesus saying when he says that, I will keep them, I will never lose them, because I and my Father are one? Jesus is essentially saying, there is nothing too hard for the Father. He has all power. I and the Father are one, therefore there's nothing too hard for me. Nothing too hard for Jesus. Just as God is all-powerful, so is the Son. As the Father is all-powerful, so is the Son, Jesus. And He can make these kinds of radical claims and back it up. He can make good on it. And so what we're dealing with here essentially is the Trinity. The Trinity. And uh, I I think it's been quite a while since I've even talked about this. And so I think we need to understand a little something of the the triunity of the Godhead, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, to to on some level grasp kind of what what Jesus is getting at here. So um, just follow me here, and you know, again, the point I'm trying to make here is for us to understand 
the validity of Jesus' claim about himself, we really need to understand something about his person, something that is very deep and something that is truly beyond our ability to grasp, but we're going to give it a go, all right? And so a good definition for the Trinity is we believe in one God, eternally existent, as three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And each one of those words are carefully selected because it's subtle, but you can easily say something that is very untrue about God depending on how you word that statement. So we believe in one God who is eternally existent as three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, the, the overwhelming testimony of the Scripture is that there is one God. Amen? Amen? We don't believe in a plurality of gods. We are monotheistic. That means we, we worship one God, one true God. We don't believe in many gods. We believe in one. At the same time, the overwhelming testimony of the Scripture is that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all God. So how does that work, right? And so this, this is a mystery to us, and it's hard for us to wrap our finite minds around it, but we do the best we can with what we got. We embrace the mystery. And so, as I said, we don't believe in three gods, and we do not believe in one God who is manifested in three different persons. Now, you might hear that and think, what does that, what, what's the issue with that? Well, it's a popular teaching about the Trinity that the Father became the Son and then became the Holy Spirit. And you can kind of go back and forth between either one, but they are not distinct from each other. It's God basically appears in different modes, if you will, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so we do not believe that. Um, and so we don't blend the persons together either. They are distinct. You understand the Father didn't die on the cross. Jesus did. That's why Jesus from the cross could say, My Father, my Father, why have you forsaken me? Again, that's a mystery to us, but we understand that to be fact. And so, uh, as I said, it's hard for us to wrap our minds around how all of these things can be true simultaneously, but I do think that when we consider each one individually and how we relate to them, it makes it a little easier for us. So we know that God... It was his plan of salvation. He created us, and he sent his son Jesus to die for us, to die for our sin, to rise again from the grave so that in believing in him we could have eternal life. So it was God's plan of salvation. He set it into motion. Jesus came, and he actually executed the plan, if you will. He did the work. He died. He lived a perfect life of obedience to God's law, and then he died a sinner's death on our behalf. And then he rose again from the grave. Well, the Holy Spirit applies it to us. So when we believe in the good news of Jesus Christ and the gospel, we get a new heart. We're born again. We're made alive. And so that's the work of the Holy Spirit, regenerating us. And so they all work very much in harmony, and they're all very much a part of the, the plan of salvation. And it's a little easier for us to understand them in that way. You tracking with me? Does that make sense? Do we need to get up and do some jumping jacks real quick? Or like, we good? Everything, we're good here? Okay. Because uh, I assure you, you know, we're not going to spend the whole time right here, but <clears throat> I think this is important. So, <clears throat> if, we, if we best understand the Trinity in that way, how we relate to each person, how would we understand the Trinity before there was any creation, before there was anyone to relate to? 
That takes us a little deeper into this whole thing. And so now we're dealing with issues of eternity past, the Trinity before there was anything created, any created place or people. And I want to ask the question, how do we understand the relationship of the Father to the Son in particular before eternity past, before creation? Well, before there was any created thing, God existed in three persons, both expressing and enjoying perfect love, unity, satisfaction, and glory. Simple as that. From eternity past, God existed in His triune Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, enjoying perfect love, unity, harmony, satisfaction, and glory, and fellowship. God didn't create us because He was just lonely. He was struggling. He's like, I need, some, I need somebody to hang out with. I'm depressed, so let me create a creation to fellowship with. And then, oh man, they messed up. They sinned. Now we're separated. What am I going to do? Well, I got to fix this. Jesus, you know, will you? You know, it didn't, it didn't work that way. That wasn't, God had no need. It's because of this amazing, incredible, triune love, unity, satisfaction that God created. It's out of that because God is a giving God, a loving God, a generous God, and full of satisfaction. And so he created something in order to pour that out onto because that is his nature. Does that make sense? In his triune Godhead, he is generous, loving, and good. And so he created us so that we could enjoy the benefits of that love and generosity. And so we understand the Father in eternity past as a father to the Son. Um, I read this epic book. It's called Delighting in the Trinity. I would encourage you to read that. It's not overly scholarly or anything. It's it's really a, a great devotional kind of consideration of the Trinity. And the guy, the author, argues that if you understand God as creator or ruler, then that actually creates an issue. God needs something to rule over to be himself. God needs a creation in order to be himself if we see him predominantly as a creator or a ruler, right? However, he says that before the Father ever created, before he ever ruled the world, before anything else, this God was a Father loving his Son. I'm going to read that again. Before the Father ever created, before He ever ruled the world, before anything else, this God was a Father loving the Son. So He has always been Father. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And before Jesus was miraculously born of a virgin in a manger, He already existed eternally as the Son, the Word of God, the second person of the Trinity, full of glory. And so it's from that place that Jesus speaks of his abilities to do the kinds of things that he promises to do. And this is the testimony of the Scriptures. Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. You know, the, the moon reflects the glory of the sun. But... In, you know, in the same way, we reflect the glory of God when we, when we try to live according to God's ways for the world to see as we attempt to be light and salt in this world. But Jesus is the very radiation of the glory of God. He radiates the glory of God because He Himself is God. 
in his triunity. And we're told in John chapter 1 that in the beginning was the what? In the beginning was the, the Word. That is the, the pre-incarnate eternal Son. He was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning, He was in the beginning with God. And then verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus speaks of this very reality in John 17, verse 4. He says, I have glorified you on earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. It's easy to read that and just kind of pass over it and not understand the depth of what is actually happening there in those words. It's amazing. And it's because of this harmony within the Trinity that all of these things are going to happen. The Father had determined that these things would take place. The plan of salvation was set into motion. And because of the Trinity, they are perfectly one and in unison and in harmony it is an absolute that these things are going to take place and that Jesus can do these things and that Jesus will do these things. Amen? It's because of who He is. So Jesus, as the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, one with the Father, we can trust, we can have total confidence in His ability to do the things that He said He can do. Amen? When He says He's the bread of life, he is true nourishment, true spiritual nourishment. We have all that we need in Him, totally satisfied. We have salvation. We have relationship. We have fellowship with our Creator. Our cup overflows. Because Jesus is who He says He is, He is the light of the world. And we really will never walk in darkness. No deception, no bondage, no corruption. Children of light walking in the light. Because our Lord and Savior is the light of the world. Jesus is the door. He really is the access point to God. And through Him we can find salvation and eternal life and fellowship with the Father. We have that because Jesus is who He says He is and He can deliver on that. He's the good shepherd who gives eternal life and never loses one sheep. And Jesus really can remove our guilt and our shame and replace it with honor and glory. Jesus can remove our guilt and shame and replace it with honor and glory. Amen. You will often hear me talk about the gospel every week up here, and I'll talk about the substitutionary aspect of it, right? We are sinners. We have broken God's law. We've transgressed, it's, and that's true. And so Jesus died in our place as our substitute, and our sins were put on Him, and if you believe in Him for salvation, you will be saved. Right? We get that. We understand that very much in our Western society, uh, how we govern and how the laws work. But there's really a whole other aspect to this. And much of the world, the world functions in a very different way. It's, it's kind of a shame-honor culture. Are you familiar with that? Shame and honor. I mean, you, I don't know, um, you've probably heard of like um, samurais, if they're defeated in battle, they'll kill themselves first because it's out of shame the shame of their own defeat. And so it's, the, it's their last kind of um, you know, way to, to die in an honorable way. Honorable death is to take their own life. And then even in other cultures, we hear about shame and honor, honor killings. You ever heard of that? 
So if someone in the family brings shame upon the family, uh, someone in the family might actually kill that person to try to restore honor back to the family. And so much of the world lives in this, in a, a very different reality. It's, it's shame and honor. And that's not something that we think a lot about here. And God always promises glory and honor. And, and you know, I don't know that we really understand the fullness of that. Now, I think we do love glory. We watch, uh, you know, we watch athletes. And when they win the game, I mean, there's all this glory. And you ever seen like the, the, have you ever seen like in a movie where the person wins and there's the shot, it pans all the way around them and just, you know, it's moving all the way around and you can see everybody just, you know, they're, they're having their glory, you know, they've got a little taste of the glory, right? And so um, there was a little hidden movie reference in there. I don't know if anybody caught that anyways. And so um, Jesus has come to take away our shame. He has come to take away the shame of our sin, our sin guilt, our sin debt. How many of us in here have been in a place of just complete and total shame? You know, how many people in here might even now, you don't have to raise your hands on this one, but how many people in here have actually, are, maybe are living in a place of complete and total shame? I mean, we can all relate with that. We know we've been there, done that, we're, we struggle with that. Well, Jesus came not only to take away, you know, God's wrath from us, but also to remove our shame and to put us into a, a place of honor, to be elevated to the, to the table of the king and to sit in his courts and to, to, to celebrate with the children of God in this place of honor and glory. Amen? Amen. Jesus can do that. Jesus can do that. He can do that, and he does do that. He is doing that, and I hope you have experienced that. And maybe you're here today and you need that. Maybe you are feeling crushed by the weight of your own sin and shame. And Jesus says, come, come to me. Come to me. I will forgive you. I will cleanse you. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. I will give you peace. I will give you rest. I will give you joy and satisfaction. I will give you meaning. I'll give you purpose. All of that in Christ. Amen? Amen. And he can do that. He can deliver that because he is who he says he is. Hallelujah. So we can have confidence. We can have confidence in our Lord. This brings us to our next point. The next two points will move uh, a little more quickly. I just really wanted to drive that one home. Number two, we have confidence in the Good Shepherd because of the Word of God. We have confidence in the Good Shepherd because of the Word of God. So verse 31, remember Jesus just said that He and the Father are one. So verse 31, then the Jews took up stones again to stone Him. Jesus answered them, Many good works I have shown you from my Father. For which of those works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself God. Pay close attention to that phrase. You, being a man, make yourself God. Now, there are many different popular views, wrong views, but popular views, about who Jesus is. You ask any number of people and they might give you one of these answers. One is that he was a prophet. Indeed, he was a prophet. 
when Jesus asked his disciples who do people say he was, they answered, people are saying that you're one of the prophets. And so they will give him some kind of place of honor that he was a special man selected by God to speak the word of God, but nothing more than that, just a, a mere man chosen of God. And people are okay with that. Some say that, and this would be the most popular view, that he was a good teacher and that he came to be an example for us to live by. In fact, he is the example of ultimate sacrifice. And so he was a model, he was an example, he was a great teacher, and he taught good moral precepts that we should attempt to follow. That's, by and large, probably the most popular thing you're going to hear people say. Others say, yes, he was divine, but he certainly was not God. He was less than God, or he's many, he's one among many gods. That he's just kind of up there with all the others, right? And then there are, you know, many who claim that uh, he's nothing at all, or that he himself never claimed to be God. Some people say that. They say Jesus never claimed to be God, which is false, patently false. But you know, all of the above are quite permissible in the world that we live in. You know, people are pretty agreeable when you talk about spiritual things or God generically, or even if Jesus is mentioned in one of these kinds of ways. But when Jesus is spoken of in regard to who he actually is, oh man, it's going down, right? People are going to get upset. The lordship of Christ is greatly offensive to the world in which we live. People do not like that. And really, all of these other options, they're not even options at all. C.S. Lewis said that there's really only three options that we have with Jesus. If you're going to believe in him or you know, anything about him, either he was a liar, he lied, he was a deceiver, so he was certainly not a good teacher. If that's the case, right? He was a deceiver. Or he was a lunatic. He was crazy. And, you know, he, maybe he really believed those things. But, uh, you know, he was um, just out of his mind. You know, I knew a guy I used to roommate with. And um, he, he struggled with uh, mental illness. And he had to take medication because if he didn't, he would think that he was Jesus. And, you know, he was homeless for years and he hitchhiked up the East Coast, and he would go in and out of, uh, in and out of um, you know, shelters and mental institutes, and he told me, he's, he's a dear brother now, and he's very much in his right mind, and he's just a servant of the Lord, but he would tell me these stories, and he, he thought at one point when he was in this institute that his, his roommate was God the Father, and so they, he would go around introducing himself this way, hello, I'm Jesus Christ, and this is God the Father. And uh, he, he could go, I could go on and on. It was really quite comical, you know. And um, he wrote a, he actually wrote a book about this. It's called, uh, I think it's From Homeless to Heaven. And I, I gave him a better title. I said, you should title it, I'm not Jesus, but I used to be. <laughs> Anyways, I'm not the Christ, but I used to be. That's what it is. Anyway, so, you know, you have to concede that he was either a liar or a lunatic or he was truly Lord. He really is who he says he is, that he is the Lord. That's really the only three options you have. Jesus doesn't allow for any of these other popular options. And you know what? Jesus really didn't allow for neutrality. Jesus didn't allow for people to be neutral in the matter. Matthew chapter 12, verse 30 says, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. 
So you're either for Jesus or against him, but you can't really be neutral and you can't really just give any of those kind of generic answers about Jesus. Now, his fiercest enemies rejected him, but make no mistake, they knew who he was claiming to be, right? Jesus' enemies, his fiercest enemies, they knew exactly who he was claiming to be, such that they were ready to kill him for it. They were ready to kill him. So, you know, they demanded an answer, they got an answer, and they only persisted in their unbelief. Isn't that how it is so often? For many people, no amount of answered questions will cause them to believe because they have no intention of believing. They just want to fight it. They want to argue. They want to debate. And it's pretty easy to tell if you're dealing with a situation like that rather quickly. Um, you know, for many, they don't actually want to know. Um, as I said, they just want to debate. But the reality is no one is ever going to have all their questions answered. We never will. In fact, when you become a Christian, you have even more questions, really. And the Christian life is one of just coming up with more and more questions and finding them in the Word of God. And I have found that with so many questions, I might not have the answer, but there is someone out there who does. Because I'll hear something and I'm like, I just don't know. But sooner or later, you talk to the right person or you listen to the right sermon or whatever, and it's like, oh, there's the answer. So really, the Christian life is one of growing in, in the knowledge of Jesus and growing and having more and more questions and questions answered. But if you're waiting until all of your questions are answered before you believe, it will never work. Because you have to have faith. Faith is believing without having all of your questions answered. And in fact, it says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. You must first believe that He is and that He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. So if you come to a place where you say, I might not understand all of this, and I still have so many questions, but I believe. I believe you, Lord. I believe you. He rewards that. He rewards that. And he will continue to. He will make himself known to you, and he will continue to reveal himself to you. And it's a glorious thing. But that's not, these guys right here, that wasn't their, their intention at all. That was not their intention. They wanted to trap Jesus. And so, Jesus is going to respond now. And I remember I was talking about how he, uh, it's, it's from the Word of God that we have our confidence in who Jesus is, and kind of now we're getting to that here. So look with me at verse 34. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken... Do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? Now this is like what in the world kind of stuff right here. And it's very confusing and, uh, you know, so I want to address this because as I read through this text, I was like, what? And I've heard this before and I've never really looked too deeply into it. And it's a, it's a confusing argument on the surface it would seem. So let me just try to unpack this a little bit, but then I want to make some good application to this. So Jesus is quoting here from Psalm 86 to argue his right to be called the Son of God. They wanted to kill him for it, and he's arguing that he, above anyone else in the world, has truly the right to bestow upon himself that title. It's been bestowed upon him by his Father, right? 
And he uses one word, one word from Psalm 86 to make his whole case, the word gods, gods. And so let me read Psalm 86 to us, just a few verses. It says, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Now, what is going on here? Well, here God is talking to the judges of Israel. And they were unjust judges. They gave partiality to the wicked. They did not protect the weak and the destitute. But they perverted justice. Now, God, in speaking to them, refers to them as gods. Now, this is a generic word for God. God's covenant name is Yahweh. Yahweh, that's, that's the God of the Bible. But the word God here, it's Elohim, and it can mean rulers, mighty ones, judges. And that's the sense in which it's, it's being used here. And so, you know, this is an argument from the greater to the lesser, from the lesser to the greater, excuse me. So what Jesus is essentially saying here, follow me, is that if God could call these unjust judges Elohim, then how much more is Jesus justified in referring to himself as the Son of God? He truly and exclusively has the right to take that title upon himself and be justified in doing it. Does that make sense? And so, I, 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 granted, that's, it can be confusing, and it's, it's a strange argument. Well, you know, who am I to say it's Jesus' argument? But for us, it can be kind of a difficult one to track with, but that's the idea. That's the idea. If God could say that of these guys, how much more do I have the right to say that I am truly the Son of God? Now, here's what I want to kind of take us to application-wise. I want us to note, as I have already mentioned, that Jesus based his entire argument on one word from the Bible. And what that tells me is that Jesus absolutely believed in the inspiration and authority of the Scriptures. One word. He was able to base his whole argument because that one word is a word from God. Therefore, it has complete and total authority and it can be used. Jesus uses it to make his case regarding his own identity. And so, you know, Jesus did this regularly. Um, and what Jesus says here is, is that the scriptures cannot be broken. That is to say, they cannot be set aside, they cannot be made null, they cannot be altered. The Word of God is the Word of God. It's inspired, it's sufficient, it's authoritative. Amen? And that is the very thing that Jesus used. Jesus, as the Son of God, used the Word of God to defend Himself and His identity as the Son. And Jesus would do this often. You remember... Um, they wanted a sign from Jesus, and he said, I'll give you the, the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth. And so Jesus likened his own resurrection to the story of Jonah. Jesus actually believed that Jonah was swallowed by a great fish. If he didn't, then he would basically be saying he didn't believe in his own resurrection, Right? And so, believe me when I tell you, Jesus believed the Word of God to be absolute truth. It wasn't just, 
you know, stories made up to, to teach us some kind of a spiritual principle. It is historical. These things actually happen. The Word of God is to be upheld as absolute truth and authority. Amen? And that was the case with Jesus. Make no, make no mistake there. And the inspired Word of God is the very source of truth about Jesus. Where else are we going to go than the Word of God itself to learn of our Lord and Savior? And what's crazy to me is that some Christians will go anywhere but the Word of God. You know, the Gospel of Thomas or, you know, some silly stuff like that. It's like, go to the Word of God. Go to the Bible. Don't be watching stuff on the History Channel about the Bible and you've got all of these, you know, PhDs who don't even know the Lord, wouldn't even profess to know the Lord trying to tell you something about Jesus. Be careful for that stuff. That is, it's deceiving. It's deceptive. I remember one time years ago seeing somebody talking about King David and they were likening him to a mob boss, a mafia guy. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and so, you know, you just got to be watch out for that kind of stuff. Anyways, the Word of God is the source of authority and sufficiency. And Jesus absolutely leaned upon that. You know, many Christians, we, we believe these things about the Word of God. We look to it, but we make very little effort to actually do what's in it. And then we wonder why there's a disconnect. Why are we not getting it? Why are we not growing? Why am I constantly struggling in this area? I read my Bible, and that's great. That's a good place to start. Read your Bible. You must. But then you've got to do what the Bible says. And that truly is the disconnect. And that's why James says, don't just be a hearer of the Word, but what? Be a, be a doer of the Word. And so Jesus, he absolutely believed in that. And we have confidence in Jesus and who he is as the good shepherd because we have confidence in the word of God. Amen. Amen. And then let's close with this last point. Confidence in the good shepherd because of the works of God. Verse 37. If I do not do the works of my father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the father is in me and I in him. Therefore they sought again to seize him, but he escaped, he escaped out of their hand. Verse 40, and he went away again beyond the Jordan to a place where John was baptizing at first, and there he stayed. Then many came to him and said, John performed no sign, but all the things that uh, John spoke about this man were true, and many believed in him there. So Jesus says, look, consider the works. Consider the signs, consider the miracles that I have done here. You know, if I didn't do the works of my Father, then you would be justified in not believing me. But I have done the works of my Father, so believe me for the sake of the works. And what did Jesus do? Jesus healed the sick. He gave sight to the blind. He caused the deaf to hear and the lame to walk. He healed lepers. He fed multitudes of people. He cast out demons, he walked on water, he calmed storms, he turned water into wine, and these were all absolutely undeniable, and these were true miracles, true miracles. It wasn't just like finding a parking spot in a crowded parking lot, you know, I mean, this was legit miracles. And Jesus did all of this in the name of and in obedience to the Father. And the Father validated his Son 
through these signs. Jesus said, I do these things in the name of my Father. And these were really the Father saying, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. And so Jesus was authorized by the Father. And that is why Nicodemus could say in John chapter 3, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher come from God. No one could do the signs that you do unless God is with him. Right? And so it is because of the things that Jesus has done, the works of God, that one can have confidence in him as the good shepherd. We need to remember God's mighty works that he has performed. He sent his son Jesus to die for us and his Holy Spirit to regenerate us. And I'm telling you right now, there's no greater miracle than that. There is no greater miracle than that, folks. We look at all those miracles in the Bible and think that's amazing to see God take a dead sinner and bring them from death to life to regenerate their heart, to take them out of slavery and bondage to Satan and sin and to make them children of God, to make them brand new creations, there is no greater miracle than that. And if you have seen that, if you have obviously experienced that, you've experienced a miracle. If you've seen that, you've seen a miracle. And so we need to remember that. Jesus works constantly and providentially in our lives all the time. We don't even know the half of it. We don't even know a fraction of it. What's going on around us all the time. God, how He's working in our lives for our good. And once you become a believer, you need to be looking for that. Be looking. Pay attention to what God is doing in your life. Because I promise you, He's doing extraordinary things, even when you don't realize it. And I love those moments where it all comes together, and you're like, wow, God, that was you. There's no other explanation for it. And those are the kinds of things that bolster our confidence in Jesus and who He says He is and that He can do what He says He can do. And you know what? It's easy to forget those things. It's easy to forget. It's easy to minimize. It's easy to look at the confusion or the lack of clarity or doubt or chaos or whatever's going on in the world and forget the good works of God in our lives. And so we have to constantly remind ourselves, remind yourself of the good that God has done and is doing in your lives because that builds that confidence. That brings us back to a place in confidence, of confidence in Jesus. And so they doubled down. They realized Jesus was doubling down on his claims and they sought to arrest him and Jesus escaped. Presumably, miraculously, he was encircled there in that, in that place and they tried to get him and he got out and he moved on. The good shepherd was undeterred by unbelief and rejection, and he continued on in his mission to seek and to save. And he's still doing that today, amen? amen? The good shepherd is still seeking and saving. And so praise God for the good shepherd. I hope you know him. I hope he's the shepherd of your life. If you don't know him, you can know him today. And I hope that you would trust Christ for salvation. Allow him to take you from a place of shame and guilt to a place of honor and glory to be the Lord and Savior of your life, to be the leader of your life, to be the good shepherd. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. May God go before you this week. May he bless you in all that you do. May he use you mightily to be a witness and a light for him in this world. May he provide for you in all of your needs according to his riches and grace, and may he protect you as a good shepherd. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. God bless you. We'll see you next Lord's Day.